0: What's going on, everyone? It is your host, Jordan Beechnaw, and this is Crossing the Jordan. And today, in this second episode of the podcast, the official second episode, we are finally talking about Jesus. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Let's get it. I am just so excited to finally talk about Jesus tonight and actually just got back from an, an awesome anointed night tonight at in Brighton. I go to a school for that's called the Encounter, uh, Encounter School of Ministry. Just type in, in Google or in the URL, EncounterMinistries.us. And they are just doing very, very powerful stuff, or the Lord is really doing very powerful stuff through this ministry. And it's uh, founded by Patrick Rice, who his family is from Ohio, but he just had this awesome encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist. And he has just became this very anointed person, and he is equipping all of us Christians and, and Catholics to be equipped on what the Lord wants to give us as sons and daughters of the Lord to be transforming the world around us. So I just highly recommend doing EncounterMinistries.us to find out more information about it. And uh, so just to give you an overview of the podcast today, first I'm going to briefly talk about just the name of Jesus and what the meaning of Jesus Christ is. And then we're going to talk about Jesus' existence. And we're going to start out with resources that are outside of the Bible. Then we're going to be talking about the reliability of the New Testament. And we'll, we'll actually see that it's the most reliable piece of antiquities or ancient documents that we can even have. But that's going to give us a nice framework and foundation in order to dive into the New Testament to learn more about Jesus. And then we're going to dive into uh, common errors or heresies about Jesus' incarnation, his nature, and what he revealed about the God of Revelation or the Judeo-Christian that the church fathers had to fight against in the first millennia of the church. Then we're going to be talking about miracles, so the miracles that Jesus performed that attest to his power, his sovereignty over over sin and death and life itself. And also the miracles that came from his followers and has always continued through the life of the church. And it's been a thing. And we're going to talk about healing in another podcast. But miracles, the signs and wonders, are expressions of what the words are. So Jesus always preached the gospel, but then he always expressed it to his people by showing these signs and wonders. And then we're going to talk about the fulfillment of Jesus. What Jesus fulfills all of the God of Revelation, the God of the Old Testament, is all revealed in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of divine revelation, and we're going to talk about that. So, I hope this goes uh, without saying, but I will uh, say that on all of my episodes, one, I'm not a theologian or a priest, or uh, I definitely do not know uh, all, all of... Just I don't know all the arguments, and even our Catholic faith itself, it's inexhaustible. You could always continue going for more and more support, so by no means is it exhaustive, and also, I'm a broken, fallen human being that just loves Jesus, so anything that I say that you feel like is incorrect or anything like that, go ahead and let me know. But let's get started with a quote that I shared actually at the end of the last episode, and it's a quote from C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So throughout the entire talk that we're going to have today, we're going to talk about Jesus' life, his existence, Then we're going to talk about his death, his crucifixion, and then we're going to talk about his resurrection. And that is what all of Christianity hinges on. If the resurrection happened then it is the one most important truth that we can possibly know and accept in this life. If it didn't happen, then so be it. Let's move on with our lives and not follow Jesus anymore. And then uh, another quote that I really enjoy is Matt Frad. He's this awesome Catholic apologist. He had a great conversion story, too. He's very young. Him and his wife are very active in ministry. And he has this awesome Australian accent to, accent to listen to. And he has uh, a podcast, too. So go type in Pints with Aquinas. He studied St. Thomas Aquinas. So type in Pints with Aquinas, and you can listen to a lot of his. His, his episodes are very deep philosophical questions as well. Um, so this is his quote. Christianity isn't too hard to believe, but too good. Everything else in life I had pursued in order to be happy had let me down. So what were the chances that the Christian message could be that good and also be true? Yet I've come to believe that it is. I can honestly say that I find Christianity the one coherent philosophy and ultimately the only satisfying answer end quote. And that is, sounds very much like my patron saint, Saint Augustine, who I talked about in the introductory episode. Saint Augustine was a bishop of the third and of the fourth century in Hippo, which is a city in Africa. And he lived a life, he was a highly intellectual man, but he lived the life of concupiscence. The concupiscence is our human nature to just try to find, uh, Um, happiness or fulfillments and these temporary things we typically choose the the least good and temporary happiness and all these things so we're filled with desires of the flesh or these uh Um, we try to just find fulfillments that are not God, this eternal longing that we have. And he searched for the truth diligently, and he found Jesus Christ and the truth of his church, and he's an awesome saint and church father. And then, much like Matt Fred that we can relate to on this day, a modern person who is just like us, we're in that same boat. We have this concupiscence that is desiring these things that are not ultimately going to fulfill us. They might give us happiness or joy or fulfill a passion or desire at that given moment, but it's all passing and fleeting. Who is eternal and who is uh, transcendent over those? Jesus. That is where you find our true peace and joy. So anyways, let's dive into the episode. So the name of Jesus. Jesus, his name, in, his, in Aramaic, is Yeshua. I love saying Yeshua. Yeshua. Jesus means God saves. That's literally what uh, what Jesus does. That is his very nature to save. And actually, the Greek word is soto sodos, which means to heal and to save. It's a double meaning. Where in our English language, we I have to say two words: to heal and to save. But Jesus, he is the God who saves and heals. Sodos, and then he is Christ, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. Christ means the Anointed One. So he is uh, God saves. He is the anointed one and Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. That is a title that he is given, obviously. Um, People of that time did not have last names. A lot of them were identified with who their father was or what they did as as a occupation. So just like today, any bakers that we know, they're probably came from a time where people started getting last names from their occupation that they did. So they probably come from like a line of bakers or somebody who started that was a baker. But at that time, there was not any, there were no last names. So, but Jesus Christ, and he is, we're going to find, come to see that he is the fulfillment of God's divine revelation of himself that was revealed through the chosen people of Israel, the Jewish people. And he is the fulfillment of the one true God, the Judeo-Christian God. And he is Jesus, Yeshua. He is the promised Messiah. He's our healer. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. He's our Lord. And he is the perfect image of the invisible God. So, now let's talk about Jesus's existence. So, first, just to give you like a time frame that uh, just what we're dealing with, because we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of resources that happened in the very first century. So, Jesus he was born on December 25th and we'll talk about that later on but if you want to see even uh, go to Catholicanswers.com there's apologists on there Jimmy Aiken and Tim Staples they're actually converts to the faith and they're Protestant pastors but they have entire articles actually showing that Jesus Christ was actually born on December 25th like it wasn't just a, a uh, just a shot in the dark and we we're like December 25th sounds great um, but he was actually born on December 25th. He died at the age of 33. He had three years of ministry when at the age of 30, he was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And uh, I'll talk about this in another episode too, but also just interesting at the age of 30, that is when uh, people became high priests in the Jewish uh, kingdom. So Jesus began his public ministry. He uh, He became that perfect eternal high priest. And he had his ministry for three years. He was crucified on April 3rd, 33 AD. He was resurrected on April 5th, 33 AD. And then he ascended into heaven on May 14th, 33 AD. And then Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell on the church, happened on May 22nd, 33 AD. And there are some arguments that it might have been 30 AD, but everything, a lot of evidence points to that specific of a date on 33 AD. So, and as we will see just how specific that is, we're going to see that the records of Jesus are recorded with extreme precision of both timing and events and just the surrounding uh, areas and the events that were going on and even the people and the place of power. And all, and all of these things just go to show you uh, already ahead of time that this can be proven and disproven both, historic- both historically and archaeologically. So, Jesus, uh, if we found his bones then there 's no point in believing him because that means that his body and soul were not resurrected and same with the Jewish religion we could if somebody ultimately found that the the ta, the ten Commandments on stone were not written, divinely given well then there 's no reason to really follow the Jewish religion but these things actually did happen the things that happened in the Bible are true. So let's dive into Jesus's existence. So um, this is also a term by C.S. Lewis. He says, Jesus is either Lord, he's either Lord, he's either a liar, or he's a lunatic. And this fourth piece, too, I think we should talk about is he is a legend, and a legend means that he's like a myth. He never actually existed. So we're going to first talk about that, but let's just address it up front that Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Jesus says that he is God, and he says that he is going to die, he is going to be crucified, and he's going to be raised on the third day. He really does not give us a choice to just to believe in him to be a smart, wise, moral man. He is either a liar because he knows he's not God, but says he's God, or he's a lunatic where he actually believes he's God, but he's not, which we're going to see that he actually did say exactly what was going to happen. He was resurrected and he was true God and true man. So let's first tackle this first piece, legend, that he did not exist. So first off, this is called mythicism. Mythicism came about in the 18th century. But it did not take more prominence until ni- until the 1970s. And it re- the reason it took more prominence is because it was from a British professor named Wells in the 1970s. And this is when, like, mythicism actually gained traction. So and But then later on, after this became uh, even more widespread, people were saying, yeah, Jesus didn't even exist. Even Wells himself, the person who made this really prominent because just in the position that he held... He even abandoned that idea and admitted that there is historical basis for the stories about Jesus. So, uh, and we even see that in like in the entire history of of Christianity, nobody argued a mythic Jesus until the 18th century. And then we, just as we said, it did not become prominent or widespread that that belief even occurred until the 1970s. So, and then there's this first century Jewish historian. So a Jewish man who did not believe Jesus was Lord. He did not believe that he was God. And his name is Josephus. And Josephus, he mentions Jesus twice in his history of the Jewish people, which is a writing called the Antiquities of the Jews. And he describes in AD 62 an event called the stoning of lawbreakers. And he even says in there that one of the criminals is described Uh, this is a quote, the brother of Jesus who was called Christ, whose name was James for transgressing the law. So he's saying that a person named James, who was a brother of Jesus, and he was stoned for transgressing the law. So what makes this passage, passage so authentic about just naming Jesus is that it lacks Christian terms like the Lord. A lot of Christians at the time would have called him the Lord or the Christ, and he doesn't. He says that this guy named Jesus, who was called Christ, It fits into the context of that section perfectly and is found in almost every single manuscript of the antiquities that we have from the writings of Josephus. And then Josephus, uh, from all those different copies, we can tell that Josephus originally wrote, this is a quote, At the time there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a following both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. And when Pilate, because an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had followed him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians has not died out end quote. So there he is referring to this man named Jesus who was a wise man who had had this very powerful preaching that he gave and people followed him everywhere. Then he also was a person of startling deeds. He was a doer of startling deeds. He was this man of miracles. He was this wonder worker and people followed him. And even after his death and resurrection, people still followed him. And we'll talk about that later and the implications of that. And then there's a, this Roman historian, Tacitus. He records in his annals that after the great fire in Rome, Emperor Nero, the founder of, oh, I'm sorry, the Emperor Nero, fastened the blame on a despised group of, of people called Christians. Tacitus identifies this group as Christ, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate procreator of Judea and the reign of Tiberius. And that exactly lines up with what the gospels say. And then uh, just from all these arguments of Jesus not being a real person, Bart Ehrman, who was a very popular uh, skeptic and he uh, he had a ton of arguments against the reliability of the New Testament, he even admits that Jesus was a real historical figure and he even wrote that the view that Jesus existed is held by virtually every expert on the planet. And so uh, it just goes to show you that like, if anybody actually goes into and dives into all of the evidence that points to Jesus being a real man who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago, they're going to find that, yeah, that's true. A man named Jesus was living on this earth, a Jewish man named Jesus, and he had all these great deeds. He did all these great deeds. He preached this message of of love and repentance, and it was not an easy message, which we'll talk about later. But he also had this huge following and he actually was crucified um but so and then also just to attest to to that a little bit further so the church fathers they fought against heresy so let's i'll just want to pause really quick and say who the church fathers are so the church fathers are those apostles so they're typically bishops of the early church that connect us between the the very first apostles so peter and the twelve through all the way through 600 AD. So what they provide is this hor- this awesome awesome connection between the first apostles and the the writing of the New Testament which happened decades later and the compilation of the New Testament which didn't happen until the late 300s. So in the 4th late 4th century the New Testament was compiled which we'll talk about later, but it's actually from the tradition of the apostles that they compiled the Bible. They actually made sure, and or, by tradition that was handed down by the apostles faithfully, that they made these, they compiled the Bible. They verified its, its accuracy of the preaching of Jesus by the tradition that the apostles gave to the church. So, uh, and then and so they don't and so Scripture and the Bible really quick, they just don't they don't contradict each other. And actually, I don't think there's any religion in the entire world that venerates the Bible like Catholics do. They venerate the body, just as we venerate the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist, we venerate the Word of God. You'll see at mass that right when the gospel is being proclaimed, the entire congregation stands up in victory with our Lord Jesus, and the priest or the deacon holds up the gospels, which are usually with like a golden cover in this beautiful uh, book. He hand, he holds it over his head, and um, we do believe that Jesus is is speaking to us right then and there. And uh, the church fathers, they attest to the early Christians, which shows that they were extremely Catholic in all of, their, all of their doctrine, and reading the fathers is famous for causing a ton of Protestant pastors and theologians to convert. So anyways, there's the church fathers, and they fought heresies, and heresies are teachings that were contrary to Christian doctrine. And they wrote a ton of uh, treatises on criticizing heretics, and yet in all of their writings, the heresy that Jesus never existed is never mentioned in the entire history of Christianity was never mentioned. So that just goes to show you that like, there's a ton of writings from the church fathers and especially like in the church councils and just the church fathers when they're writing on their own. They're, they're addressing people that were uh, spreading false gospels or false uh, teachings about who Jesus was or what the church teaches. And there's no one no nothing in there that ever talks about Jesus ever existing because everybody's new. Jesus really did exist. And then uh, Saint Polycarp of Smyrna, he's he's a church father and actually he's a disciple of Saint John. So Saint John is an original is an original apostle. He is the one that uh, Jesus called to be one of his apostles. He was there at the Transfiguration, he was there at the Last Supper, he is ordained a bishop and a priest at the Last Supper, he leaned on Jesus' Uh, heart to hear it beat at the Last Supper, and then he's at the foot of the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus. He was a he was called the beloved disciple throughout the Gospels, and then he actually has three letters, and then in the New Testament letters, and then he also is the author of the Book of Revelation. So he, Saint Polycarp, he knew Saint John personally, and he describes Jesus's endurance till death, and similarly exhorts his believers to. This is a quote. Practice all endurance, which also you saw with your own eyes, in the blessed Ignatius, and Zosimus, and Rufus, each of those three are uh, apostles or um, bishops of the early church, and in others also who came from among yourselves, as well as in Paul himself and the rest of the apostles. End quote. So, just to back up again, Ignatius, uh, Zosimus, and Rufus—they're uh, apostles of the early church. There, and actually, Saint Ignatius of Antioch—he's a church father—and we're going to talk about this some other time. But he talks about the authority of the church, and this is within the first century. He talks about the authority of the church and the true body and blood of Jesus Christ, and he actually went and was martyred for that. Um, and then, uh, so because of Clement. Um, who is the fourth pope after Peter, Linus, and Acledus, and is mentioned? He's also actually mentioned in Scripture in Philippians four three. You'll see that there's a mention of Clement, Clement, and uh, and so Clement and Polycarp they personally knew the apostles. So we have a high degree of confidence in their testimony that they actually knew Jesus, handed down his teachings faithfully from the apostles, and they are actually martyred. And then uh, there's been, from out of this mythicism that has occurred in the last, uh, I guess, really 150 years or so, there's been made up things that saying that Jesus is actually a branch off of pagan myths of dying and rising gods that were born on December 25th, had 12 disciples, were crucified, and then rose from the dead. And the most popular of those two legends are called Mithra and Horus. And when experts actually dove in, whether they are skeptics or not, or uh, agnostics or atheists, when they dove into the evidence, they showed that, yeah, these myths actually came after Christianity. So these were made up myths. And then uh, there's a famous man named uh, T.N.D. Metigner, and he writes in his scholarly monograph, which is titled Riddle of the Resurrection, Dying and Rising Gods in the Ancient Near East. And this is his quote. There is, as far as I am aware, no prima facie evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a mythological construct drawing on myths and rites of the dying and rising gods of the surrounding world. While studied with prophet against the background of Jewish resurrection belief, the faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus retains its unique character in the history of religions, end quote. And then other, other than the claim that Jesus didn't exist, there's also this claim that Jesus wasn't actually crucified. And there's two really groups of people that hold that claim. And one is what we've already addressed, people that say Jesus didn't even exist, so the mythicists. And then there's also uh, our, our brothers and sisters that are uh, Muslim, They say that Jesus wasn't actually crucified. But as we saw earlier, um, like when we read the Antiquities of the Jews written by Josephus, a Jewish historian, he even talks about a Jewish man who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Which and it, again, I'll quote it: When Pilate, because, because an accusation made by the leading men among us condemned him to the cross. End quote. So those leading men among us are like the high priest and the people of the uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the the um, authoritative body of the Jewish people, and they called for Jesus's scourging and his crucifixion, and they were given to the Roman empire so Pontius Pilate then he condemned him to death based on what the people shouted for really and then also uh just to just to briefly touch on too the Roman punishment at the time was crucifixion so if you were a criminal you would be crucified outside the city and uh, and Jesus himself, he wa- he carried a cross outside the city of Jerusalem, and he is crucified on top of this hill called Calvary or Mount Golgotha, and he was crucified there with two other criminals. So, crucifixion happened a lot, and it was a form of excruciating torture people were nailed to a cross and they actually had like a spike in their back so like it was tough to breathe they couldn't, that's usually actually how they would die is asphyxiation so they actually couldn't breathe because their lungs would be filled with fluid and uh, so it was excruciating pain and it'd be really embarrassing like they were stripped completely naked and it was a very embarrassing type of way to be be killed so uh, yeah, that was a very popular Roman punishment for criminals was crucifixion And then just to finish this section up about uh, Jesus's existence and using outside the Bible type of resources um, is just that religious and non-religious scholars who do not have a preconceived attitude about Jesus's death agree that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified in first century Judea. And there's actually a very uh, famous skeptic uh, critic, his name is John Dominic Crossan, He denies that Jesus rose from the dead, but even he admits, and this is his quote, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, end quote. So a very skeptical person, and he does not claim that Jesus rose from the dead, but he even says Jesus was real and he was crucified, and it's the most sure thing historical can ever be. And then almost every single expert who goes, or really historian expert, Almost every single historian expert, either secular or Christian, they agree that Jesus died from crucifixion. And now let's move to talking about the reliability of the New Testament. And we'll also have other episodes on the Bible. I actually think the next episode is going to be on on the Bible. Um, So... The majority of the books of the New Testament, they were written all within the first century after his crucifixion, while most of the eyewitnesses of Jesus's ministry were still alive. So uh, the New Testament, so Jesus died in 33 AD, then a lot of the writings came in between 50 or 55 AD and through 90 AD where St. John wrote the last one in the book of Revelation. And also the the gospel of John happened in in 90, 80 as well. So pretty, it seems like a few uh, decades to us, seems like a long time, and therefore it wouldn't be very historically accurate. However, this was actually relatively early because the earliest biographies of Alexander the Great, for example, they were written 400 years after his death. And yet historians do not doubt that Alexander the Great existed or that we have a basically accurate knowledge of his life. And then same thing with the the biography of Siddhartha Gautama, which is, or the Buddha, they were written nearly 400 years after the death of, of his subjects. And almost everybody just takes that for, for what it's worth. But because they lived in a culture that writing was expensive. It was hard to do. It was, uh, time consuming and very labor, uh, conducive and they had all oral traditions. So like in our culture today, I can't fathom that. Like if I go to the grocery store on the way here from my house, if I left here right now to go to Kroger, I would forget if if I was just looking at the fridge, but I would need to write it down. But that's just how I've trained my entire mind to work. But this is a time where people, that's literally how uh, they they learned is by hearing. And a lot of people were illiterate anyways. So uh, anyways, so the New Testament was actually written very, very uh, quickly relative to other antiquities or ancient documents that that we see. And uh, which this gives us better sources for Jesus than we have for most of the major figures of ancient history, which the, the two I've explained were Alexander the Great and the Buddha. And then we also have 500 manuscripts that are dated earlier than AD 500. And so this is... Just comparing it to the next best thing, which is actually the, um, the poem called the Iliad by Homer. This is the next best attested to ancient text that we have. And that was, uh, we know that there's 50 copies that date within 500 years of the origin. So within that t- same, same timeline, so within 500 years, there's 500 manuscripts of the, of the New Testament, and there's only 50 of Homer's poem, the Iliad. And so the quantity of New Testament manuscripts enables us to check them against each other and ensure that they have been reliably transmitted to us with very few variant airings. And then the New Testament, it also has manuscripts both uh, both that are partial or that are completely whole. And currently there's 25,000 whole and partial copies of ancient New Testament manuscripts in existence and so that is a ton of evidence of evidence showing its authenticity and that is more than any other manuscript in the ancient world and uh um, probably more than all other ancient greek manuscripts put together so this large number of manuscripts uh, as well as the communities that passed on the new testament in oral form means that no one person ever at a single time had the possession of all those documents which would be give them an opportunity to destroy or to alter the records of the life of jesus they are all extremely consistent and yet they are scattered everywhere so this means that they are extremely reliable the new testament text uh reliable and they communicate their original message and are not a conglomeration of legends that built up slowly over time so uh, and then, as, as I mentioned to you earlier, is that ancient cultures, they lacked computers, printing presses, or even ready papers. So they were extremely proficient at preserving a- accurate and detailed oral traditions. And then we're also able to check the accuracy of manuscript copies by comparing them to how the early church fathers quoted scripture. They wrote thousands of pages uh, of commentary on the Bible. And the textual critics compare those numerous scriptural quotations using commentaries, sermons, and other treatises written by these early church fathers. And the the writings of the early church fathers are so extensive that the citations that if all other sources of our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were to be completely destroyed, Those alone would be sufficient enough for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. So those early church father writings or the commentaries or their sermons that they wrote on the New Testament, you could reconstruct the New Testament if the New Testament was destroyed just by the writings of the church fathers, which also just points to the accuracy of the New Testament. And then the names of the gospel authors, they were added to the manuscripts later in accordance with church tradition. In the 2nd century church, Father Papias, uh, he said, this is a quote, Mark, being the recorder of Peter, wrote accurately, but not in order, whatever Peter remembered of the things either said or done by the Lord. Matthew composed the Logia, or sayings, in Hebrew style, but each recorded them as he was able. So this is just showing that, yes, the names of the Gospels on who wrote them didn't come until later, like in the second uh, century, and it was tradition, but a ton... Of manuscripts came were very anonymous so even like the writings of uh plato or aristotle they were written by people that didn't even know them <laughs> so it was uh oral tradition but same thing with the gospels they were written down by people that either knew the the apostles the followers of jesus themselves or it was written of the apostles themselves so like the gospel of luke that was for sure written by luke and the book of acts the Acts of the Apostles. That was for sure written by Luke. There's very strong historical evidence and uh, that just point to that being the case. So even in the times where we're not positive on who wrote it, we can still know that it was accurately handed down from, and that was the teaching of that apostle that knew Jesus himself. And just uh, I guess just a brief overview, since we're talking about the Gospels. There's four Gospels, the Gospels meaning good news in Greek, the four Gospels that talk about and document the life of Jesus, and it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar to each other. And Mark was written the earliest. And then then it appears that Luke and Matthew both kind of uh, used uh, Mark in order to pull certain uh, stories out. And they used a bunch of different uh, evidence or just like knowing Jesus to document the life of Jesus. And then the Gospel of John that was written quite a bit later by the disciple of John. Uh, And then there's, um, and then other than that, there's 23 other writings outside of, of the Gospels, which includes the Acts of the Apostles, and then there's the epistles or uh, Pauline letters. He, Saint Paul, he wrote a uh, quite a few letters to different churches. So these were not churches that were being being formed in that time. They were established churches that saint paul using the authority given to him by the apostles as a bishop of the church was correcting or can uh commending or telling them that he can't wait to see them in person teach them more and then we also have writings from saint peter and saint john and saint james and then the book of revelation so 27 books in total in the new testament so uh Anyway, so St. Augustine, he, I mentioned earlier, he was a bishop in the 4th century. He convincingly argued that just as the authorship of pagan words is confirmed by a long succession of testimony, the authorship, uh, the authorship of the New Testament could be confirmed in the same way. And this is uh, an argument that's called, what historians call, the criterion of embarrassment. So in the Gospels and in the writings of the Apostles, uh, or uh, from like Saint Paul or Saint Peter, Saint John, Saint James, they talk about themselves acting very cowardly or having extremely stupid be- behavior, and even Jesus rebuking them. And Jesus has really high, hard sayings. He ho- upholds a uh, a very high standard of a- ethical demands. So, if the people who are writing them, the apostles, if they truly wanted to talk about Jesus, like why would they ever make themselves look like in that shameful or embarrassment state where like Jesus Himself rebukes them, or they just say something or asks the Lord something that seems extremely ridiculous, or their confusion they they just did not understand uh, uh, quite a few things in that time uh, that Jesus was speaking to them, or times where they completely like. They uh, denied Jesus. Like, why would they ever record that? Um, So that's called the criterion of embarrassment. And then also within the Gospels, we never read Jesus speaking on the many issues that later affected the early church, such as the Trinity or the very nature of God uh, or the very nature of Jesus um, and his fulfillment of truly being the Messiah. That is the fulfillment of divine revelation in the of Judaism, and. Um, which we'll talk about later, the early church through councils they they fought against. And then, so because of that, we can have increased confidence in their early dating and in taking the gospel accounts, not as purely theological treatises, but as bioe, which is or uh, ancient biography, which is exactly how a ton of writings happened, And actually the gospels themselves, they're written very much like a biography, like the, the life. They even talk about at the beginning, like where they got their sources from, who uh, who was writing it or who, it's, who their audience is. And then they go through like the life. And a lot of it was not in chronological order. It happened almost like in a, uh, like a topical order. So they were talking about Jesus. So we can, just by comparing the different New Testament scriptures, we do have quite a strong idea of the timing of Jesus's life and like these different things that have happened, like his healing and miracles and his preaching and all these things. But there are other times where uh, we're not completely positive because at the time of the when the Gospels were written, it was very standard to write a biography about somebody's life, exactly how the New Testament Gospels are written. And then also, uh, Bart Ehrman, he's an agnostic scholar. So agnostic means that they believe in a God, but he's like removed from the world, basically. He's not involved in the world. Um, what we talked about in my first uh, podcast or my first episode talking about the existence of God, that was addressing atheism where there's no God at all. Um, So anyways, Bart Ehrman, he's an agnostic scholar who is widely regarded regarded as an expert on New Testament documents. He wrote this. uh, This is a quote. The view that Jesus existed is held by virtually every expert on the planet. Which we read earlier, but this is referring specifically to the New Testament, and uh, he shows he even saw how the authentic and reliable that the New Testament uh, documents were, which points to Jesus being a real person who existed. And then uh, this man, this very famous archaeologist, he uh, his name is Sir William M. Ramsey. He was a, a, an, ex- an extreme skeptic, and he became convinced of the new testament books and he even says he calls them that they'll stand the the keenest scrutiny and were written by a historian of the first rank so as we can see and when it comes to the standards of ancient history the gospels are among our both our best and most reliable sources of the life of christ so now that we see that the new testament is extremely reliable probably our most reliable ancient text that we have in the entire world let's dive in to the new testament and see what it says about jesus so as we mentioned earlier jesus claimed that he was god he said that he was going to be crucified and he was going to be raised from the dead and then he actually does it no other person in history does this so let's talk about his resurrection so The resurrection was Jesus, his body, being risen from the dead. So after Jesus' crucifixion, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a Jewish man, he came and to, he asked pontius pilate for the body of jesus to give him a proper burial and this is not unheard of there's actually uh multiple or a few first century um jewish pe- jewish people that were crucified and in deuteronomy we see that it is not like lawful or moral for a jewish man to be hung on a tree and kept there so they would take their bodies and be given a proper burial such as these few people in the first century they actually had a proper burial But anyways, so Joseph of Arimathea takes his body, puts it in a tomb, and the Roman soldiers watch this tomb where Jesus was. And they they wake up the next day, that tomb is rolled back, and an angel is there, and Jesus is risen from the dead. His body is risen from the dead. So uh, let's talk about the appearances that happen. So let's first talk about the private appearances where Jesus appeared to one person. First he appears to Mary Magdalene, and then the women at the tomb, and then Peter, the first pope, and then James. And then he appears to the 12 in mul- multiple instances. So after he actually appeared to James as recorded in 1 Corinthians 15:5, then he appeared to the 12. And then he appeared in the upper room on the night of the resurrection, then he uh, appeared on the seashore when his apostles were were fishing then he appears in the, the succession of those 40 days between his resurrection and when he ascends to heaven and then he uh appears to the 12 on the mount of olives before his ascension and then saint paul records in first corinthians fifteen six that jesus was seen by over 500 people Five hundred people, so there's a few different arguments on why people would have seen Jesus after he was crucified uh, that try to do away with his true glorified resurrection is there's really two groups of them the illusions or like hallucinations people were hallucinating or that Jesus that he actually didn't die he just he they didn't like kill him he was just badly beaten up and he walks out of out of there so let's first address that first one on uh, on hallucinations so yes hallucinations they do happen privately right so hardly ever in hallucinations like people on drugs or anything like that hardly ever hallucinations happen with uh with multiple people seeing the same thing so that could happen privately which we have seen before he did appear to a few people privately But then he appears to the 12 and then to 500 people. Hallucinations do not happen like that in group settings. And then Jesus, that he didn't die, like he actually just walked out. I mean, we'll find out. We'll talk about his his actual death a little bit later on when we talk about the Shroud of Tyran. This man was brutally murdered. There is no way that he would come out and then roll away a tomb, and then just walk out past the guards, the Roman guards that were guarding his body. Uh, and then he goes and sees the disciples, and then they're excited to see him. Uh uh-uh. Nope, I'd be freaking out. <laughs> and then, so then not only does he appear to people in private, to the 12, and to 500 people, he also ate with his disciples. This was not a ghostly appearance. This was a human being. You could touch him. He ate with his disciples. We see that he eats with his disciples on the seashore in John 21. Then he uh, encounters two of his disciples that are traveling on, the ro- traveling on the road to Emmaus, which I cannot wait to talk about that when I talk about the Mass and the Eucharist. Go read Luke 24. That is the first Mass after Jesus' resurrection. The first thing he does in Luke after his resurrection is encounter the, the, his two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't see him. They don't see Jesus; they just see this man. Well, Jesus, hidden in this man, goes and taught and shows them how Jesus is the the Messiah, the one who is fulfilling all of these things by showing, walking them through the Law of Moses and the Prophets and all of these things in the Old Testament, showing that Jesus had to be crucified and was gonna and was gonna die and rise again, and then. He breaks bread with them and then he vanishes from their sight, but their eyes were opened in the manna and the breaking of the bread. That is the mass. Anyways, and then he eats a third time with his with his disciples in uh, Jerusalem in Luke 24. And then uh, Doubting Thomas, one of the apostles, Thomas, he actually touched Jesus's wound. So the reason they call him Doubting Thomas is because he was a follower of Jesus after Jesus appeared to multiple apostles. Thomas didn't see Jesus yet. So he's like, no, I'm not going to believe this unless I see the Lord myself. Well, Jesus appears and he even says, uh, stick your hand into my side because Jesus was pierced with a lance through his heart. So Jesus, his glorified body, but still uh, had the wounds. And we'll even see in the book of Revelation is that he was uh, the lamb or the, he was the king as if slain. So the, the lamb of God in, in heaven. So his glorified body still had these wounds. Um, and then we'll also talk about in the Eucharist too, how that just can sit, uh, is, lines up perfectly with all the Eucharistic miracles that have happened. And then, uh, so Paul's authorship of the major New Testament epistles, such as Romans, Corinthians, which are 1 and 2 Corinthians, and then Galatians, those four are extremely established, well-established, even among the most skeptical scholars. And in those letters, Paul makes it clear that the Jesus he believed in was a man who was a descendant from David, so King David from the Old Testament. He was a descendant from David, and you see that in Romans 1. He was born of a woman. You'll see that in Galatians 4.4. 4. Then he had a Last Supper with his disciples, and you'll see that in 1 Corinthians 11.23-26, where uh, St. Paul is talking about the Eucharist being celebrated in the early church. And then uh, Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, as you'll see him talking about in 1 Corinthians 15.3-7. And then also St. Paul, he records in Galatians 1.18-19. Um, he records a meeting. And in fact, the Greek word that Paul uses in that moment to describe this discussion with the apostles about Jesus, the Greek word is, uh, I'm going to butcher this, but it's something like historesia, from which we get the word history. So that's literally where we get the word history from, is Galatians 1, 18, 19, where St. Paul is talking about this discussion that they're having amongst the apostles about Jesus. And then Jesus saw himself as being much more than just a prophet among many or a wise sage. So just a few examples. There's tons of examples. But we'll start with these few. So in, Mark 11, in Matthew 11, 27, he says that he has an absolute relationship with God the Father. And then in Luke twenty-two twenty-nine, 29, he claims to have the authority to confer kingdoms just like the Father does. And then uh, in John 8, 5, 858 he uses that fr- that famous term I am, which the God revealed to the Jewish people. that is what he called himself I am and that's and we talked about that in the last episode talking about the existence of God. He is the one true God. He is existence. And then uh, John 20 and 20 John 2028 20, uh, doubting Thomas when he sees Jesus and he sticks his hand to his side, he says, "My Lord and my God. And then also in Paul's letters, he confirms that Christians worshipped uh, Jesus. So Paul says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God in, in Colossians, Colossians 1.15, in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. has the He has the form of God and a name to which every knee shall bend, and that he is our great God and Savior. And he writes that in Titus 2.13 when St. Paul is writing to Titus. And then... And Titus, by the way, is a a, a bishop of the early church. And then even uh, just something also, when Jesus was born, he was an infant. So the word made flesh in Mary's womb. The magi, the three uh, magi from the east, they traveled following the star, following this star that would take them to the Messiah. They come and they worship the infant Jesus that was held by Mary in her arms. And they bring him uh, gifts such as gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And those are three gifts given to a king. So they gave him gold because he is a king, he is royalty. They gave him frankincense because frankincense, just like the Jewish people and in the Catholic Church today, incense is used in worship. And then they also gave them myrrh which was an oil that they used to anoint the dead and that's exactly precisely what Jesus came to do. He came to die in order to give us life. And he was God even as an infant baby as the fullness of God dwelling bodily. So Jesus fully man and fully God his entire infancy. And we'll talk about that some other more about that too at some other time, but so, then let's also talk about his more about his resurrection. So, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, the tomb would be empty. His resurrection would also explain the alleged post mortem appearances, the unique qualities of Jesus' resurrected body, and why they professed a resurrected Messiah. The resurrection hypothesis adequately explains how the early Christians could continue to profess Jesus as God despite the fact he was crucified and died. And also, why would the conspirators make this up when a resurrected Messiah was not even a hope for first century Jews? The, the, uh, the idea of a Messiah was more of an earthly, um, very militant type of leadership. This Messiah would restore the kingdom of Israel here on earth, and they would reign at, on, here on earth in peace. So this is something Jesus was not what they were expecting. And uh, and yet the Jewish people that, that followed him, such as his apostles, his disciples, and people that came to believe in Jesus, they followed him even to their own martyrdom. They thought Jesus was worth dying for. And we'll talk about that a little bit later too. So it is really unreasonable to think that the early Christians would undergo harsh persecution and death for what they knew to be a lie. They would not lie about it and then be uh, you know, brutally tortured and murdered for believing in this Jesus um and then uh so the apostles they sincerely believe jesus rose from the dead and that allows us to conclude that the best motivator for such a belief was an actual resurrection and then uh and also in the gospels they talk about um women being the the people that were really the first evangelizers they went and after they saw the empty tomb they ran to tell people, so they used women. Which women's testimony during the first century Judaism uh, and the the Gospels, they were not uh, the most credible witnesses. They actually refrained from using women in times of making like big decisions like that. Uh, which is obviously horrible and we'll even talk about that some other time too but the catholic church christianity has changed and flipped all that upside down everybody is has full dignity and is made an image likeness of god including just times like this where when men and women are equal so uh they so the the gospel writers they could have easily chosen men to be the first witnesses such as that the man the jewish man that came in god uh jesus's body joseph joseph of arimathea and yet they you they still use women because it must be true <laughs> they they still talk about women if they were trying to lie and manipulate this story then they would have tried to make it more credible by using men but instead they talk about women so uh and then Jesus, we'll talk about this later too, but he is revealing that God is, the trini- God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons and one God. And this was part one of the episode about Jesus. So go ahead and go to the next episode for part two for the completion of this recording about Jesus.